This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Benjamin Percy, author of three novels, The Deadlands, Red Moon, and The Wilding. He has also written screenplays, comics, and two short story collections. His latest work is called Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction. Because Percy's taste leans heavily towards science fiction, fantasy, mystery, and horror, the essays focus on grabbing the reader's attention and never letting it go. We began our discussion talking about that thing he looks for in all the books he reads, stories that quicken his pulse. You know, I grew up on genre fiction, and I don't think I'm unique in that way. Uh, but I grew up obsessed with westerns by Zane Grey and Louis L'Amour. I grew up reading, uh, you know, all the Sherlock Holmes stories. I grew up reading Tony Hillerman and Agatha Christie. I grew up reading fantasy novels, uh, all the Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms books, um, the Wheel of Time series, Tolkien's Middle Earth, uh, and. Horror especially, you know, I read a lot of sci-fi as well, but horror especially gripped me in its bony fist. And, you know, was, to me, that's, that's what storytelling was. And I was reading for pure escapism. I was reading to discover what happened next. Uh, so that, you know, pulse quickening impulse is why, this sounds really romantic, but why my family would so often be sprawled out in the living room at night, you know, all of us reading different mass market paperbacks with embossed titles together. And, you know, I stepped into my first creative writing classroom. It was my sophomore year of college. And this whole idea of joyful storytelling, like uh, escapist storytelling, pulse quickening storytelling, genre storytelling, you know, that was, uh, I discovered I was battled back against by the professor instantly. He went through the syllabus, and that's the final thing he said, was that there was no genre in the class, uh, that we would be writing no stories about vampires or dragons or barbarians with woolly underpants or, you know, robots with laser eyes or any of that. So for the next few years, I you know, read and wrote almost exclusively literary fiction because that's what I was assigned. And I never fell out of love with genre fiction, even though every class opened up the same way. No genre, no genre, no genre. And there was no, there was no greater insult in a workshop than a student saying that this was, oh, this is a little bit sci-fi or this is a bit plotty. Um, you know, plot was a dirty word. So, you know, even as enamored as I was with literary fiction, because I, you know, I'd never heard of Raymond Carver, I'd never heard of Leslie Silko, I'd never heard of Alice Munro or Flannery O'Connor up to this point, you know, and as much as I love their work, I also sort of pined for uh, those stories that had enamored me when I was a kid. When you were younger, one of the things that you did and you were in, interested in all these kind of books and you were giving your teacher a present and you gave her a jar of 
I guess it looked kind of like green slime. It was like ectoplasm with spiders in it. You put it on her desk and she probably had a lot of apples and other things. You were using that story to describe how you were different than other kids. And I was thinking about our DNA as humans and what we find appealing if we had no maybe cultural references. And it seems like there's something in us that we just turn towards a bunny and turns away from the ectoplasm. And I'm just wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm hard, I'm obviously hardwired differently than the rest of the population. Uh, people are always asking me, you know, why do you like horror? Why do you like such terrible things? And I don't know. It's just the way, you know, my brain is put together. Uh, and, you know, the... I truly did. I gave her a jar full of ectoplasm, but it wasn't just ectoplasm. It was ectoplasm dotted with plastic spiders. That was <laughs> that was my Christmas gift to my fifth grade teacher, uh, and I'm sure she remembers it to this day. Uh, so, I mean, I could in- intellectualize why I like horror or why people like horror. That you know, maybe it has something to do with the fact that we like to dare the nightmare, just like we. As Stephen King says, love to climb onto a roller coaster and, uh, you know, swing through all those loops and dips and come out the other side safe. Uh, you know, we want that adrenal burst, but in a, in a really comfortable environment. We, you know, it's, it's a way of working through trials. It's a way of, of, of working through sort of like the ugly things that boil around inside of us and, and lancing that boiling, getting it out of our system. Or Stephen King also says it's the equivalent of like uh, public execution. Like if you go to a horror movie and it's the midnight showing, there are people, you know, screaming and laughing at the screen. It's the equivalent of somebody marching up to the guillotine and people throwing rotten cabbage. Uh, and on and on we could go, but I mean, I think you just, you get down to it. Uh, I grew up in a, you know, sort of strange world and that my parents were for a time back to the landers. Uh, we lived on 27 acres of land and, you know, my father harvested all of our meats. I grew up on elk and venison and bear. We had a chicken coop. We had a dairy cow, vegetable patch, fruit trees. It was, you know, an isolated environment and, you know, it wasn't unusual for me to walk into the garage and see my mom butchering an elk. It was sort of a, not just a weird way to grow up, but kind of a frightening way to grow up. I can remember waking up in the back of a pickup truck in the middle, you know, at <clears throat> pre in the pre-dawn in the mountains, and and there was fog circling the truck, and I was alone in it, and you know, my father was somewhere out there in the woods, and there were elk calling you know and they have this sort of dinosaur call they sound like metal being drawn uh you know across metal and i witnessed sort of like the brutality of nature constantly um and i think that that probably imprinted itself upon me this is first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio i'm mitzi rapkin my guest is benjamin percy author of the deadlands red moon and thrill me Essays on Fiction. Our interview was recorded via Skype. One of the things that you use a lot in the way that you talk about fiction is film. Um, You use film to illustrate your points about fiction. 
And I'm wondering why film sometimes works better for you, like why you're crossing genres when you're in the end, you're talking about writing. The book contains many references to film, to TV, to music, to comic books, um, just, you know, the snobbiest of literary short stories as well. And I guess that I'm, I'm just not making any, I'm not, I'm not distinguishing between them. I'm looking at storytelling techniques and I'm equally influenced by Alice Munro and the walking dead. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking about so-called high or low art. Um, I'm just thinking about techniques. I'm thinking about what moves me. So yeah, there are many references to Jaws in this book. So many that uh, the editors said maybe we should have had a subtitle that was Thrill Me, Essays on Jaws. Uh, I actually had to edit quite a lot of the Jaws references out. They were they were so abundant. Um, and I don't know. There's You know, when I'm teaching in a class, <clears throat> obviously there are a lot of literary examples that we're unpacking, but I'm oftentimes pulling something up on the screen and showing a clip from YouTube, um, put, popping a DVD in the tray and, and showing a clip from a film. And, you know, it can take 20 minutes to break down an equivalent scene in a short story or in a novel. And I can show a two minute clip and we can all watch it together and maybe rewatch it and unpack it and accomplish the same thing. So I'm also, you know, oftentimes trying to say that the, the same things are happening, that yes, there is a difference between novels and movies. I know this, uh, but their skeletal structure remains the same. In your book, you wrote anticipation satisfies in a way acquisition does not, and that every answer is unsatisfactory unless it opens up into another question. So when you take this philosophy and put it on the page, when you're writing a book, how do you keep this in mind and what sorts of things do you do to make sure you're opening up another question or creating that anticipation? Stephen King says that the greatest moment in any horror story is when the character hears a noise behind a door and it could be the door to an attic or it could be the door to a basement and they move toward it and reach out their hand for the knob ends. It's that moment. It's that moment that matters most. Not the moment when they turn the knob and open up the door because whatever's on the other side is going to make them scream and make the audience scream, but that scream is going to be followed by laughter a relieved laughter because whatever was on the other side is not as bad as we imagined. So that dread that feel that we feel is so powerful in part because we're complicit in the authorship of the story as audience. You know, we are filling in the blank. The shark in Jaws is so wonderfully scary because it is a fin because it is a shadowy surge of water. As soon as the shark appears, we're like, that doesn't look real. And, you know, that disappointment accompanies it. So, you know, I talk about how there's an expiration date in stories where it's, you can only wait so long before that attic door opens or that basement door opens. And then what, right? Like if it's a short story, fine. Uh, but the telltale heart can only go on for so long before 
those floorboards get ripped up. And the pit and the pendulum can only go on so long before that pendulum slices open his guts. One of the things you're talking about with withholding information is are the spaces that are left out. And you talk about the idea of obscene. And I learned the root definition of it when I was reading your book. It has, it has to do with being off stage and our imaginations filling in. And sometimes the idea of things that don't happen are even more gruesome in our imagination. This is what got me thinking about this. I was reading all these stories in my workshops usually by young men that were outrageously violent. And I started to label this gornography because it felt like violence meant to titillate. Uh, it felt almost masturbatory the way that they were detailing all these atrocities. And I t tried to look for examples of, you know, that sort of fought against this. And yeah, there's a lot of Chuck Palahniuk being read. Uh, and I think that's maybe where that impulse comes from. There's a lot of uh, video games that sort of revel in gore and there are those movies like Hostel and Saw that are basically torture porn. And maybe that's it. But then, you know, you show them examples like Frenzy, Hitchcock's Frenzy, uh, his penultimate film. And there's that incredible moment where the known killer is seducing a woman. She, he's walking her through a farmer's market, uh, taking her back to his apartment, walking up the stairs. This is a five, seven minute scene. Uh, and we remain as camera on the landing as he goes into the apartment and closes the door. It's then that you hear a scuffle, a scream, a thump. And that is a terrifying moment because as I said before, the audience is complicit in the violence. Now, you know, I can throw out 50 other examples of this same move. Sometimes it's best for the violence to occur off stage. Sometimes, though, it is important for us to, to witness the violence. If it's meant to repulse, uh, you look at examples like Eula Biss and that incredible essay of hers, Time and Distance Overcome. I actually heard this essay. I didn't read it the first time. Eula Biss takes the stage and she starts going through this essay and I'll admit that I was bored to death because here she is going on and on about Alexander Graham Bell and the advent of the telephone and telephone poles and the infrastructure that went into, you know, connecting the country. And I was wondering, like, why is this such a celebrated work of art? Because I'd heard all this hype about the collection. And then she gets to the fulcrum point of the essay, and there's actually a, a space there. There's a white space. And she paused for a long time, and then she leapt into the second part of the essay. And the second part of the essay is all about the men, the black men, who have been hung from telephone poles in this country or have been tied to and beaten from telephone poles. They have been, you know, eaten by dogs when tied to telephone poles or tarred when tied to telephone poles. She goes through example after example after example, and she doesn't hold anything back. And that's a good thing because we are meant to be, you know, stunned and terrified uh, by the uncanny because she takes something that is, you know, just, just an everyday part of our lives that you would never notice a telephone pole. You know, she, she makes it uncanny by you know, showing them that they've been varnished in blood. Everybody in that 
ballroom, including myself, was fighting back tears by the end of it. So sometimes an example like that, right? Violence, shown violence, on stage violence, on camera violence is absolutely the point. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Benjamin Percy, author of The Deadlands, Red Moon, and Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction. Our interview was recorded via Skype. One of the things you write about in your book that you you think about your novels for maybe a year before you even start writing them and you seem to be a proponent, at least in the way that your mind works and your work, of knowing the ending before you start, so you know where you're going. Can you talk about this and how knowing the ending either opens up these opportunities for these scenes or why you espouse that philosophy? Well, I wrote four failed novels before publishing one, and I did not know what my ending was when I began them. So in part, this is a defensive technique that I never want that to happen again. And when you <coughs> know your ending, every single scene is building towards that em- that ending. Every single moment is like so many dominoes uh, crashing together, transferring their momentum forward. Not every writer believes this. Uh, you know, Dan Sean uh, is a much more has a much more organic process where. He just chases things moment to moment, page to page, and he thinks that the act of discovery is really the reason that he loves writing. And he'll pump out 130 pages for every short story that he writes and then rearrange them, study them, and finally figure out, okay, these 13 pages, that's actually the story, and revise from there. And I don't know, you can absolutely do that. Uh, But it just sounds like a lot of work to me, you know. If you don't know what your ending is when you start that novel, you're going to go down a lot of blind alleys to figure out where you're going. Uh, so it might take you 10 years instead of three. And I am not the only one who says, no, your ending when you begin. You know, John Irving writes the first, the last line before he begins the first line. Uh, and the thing is, you have to give yourself, of course, permission to change your mind. Uh, I have these you know, maps on my office wall. As you mentioned, I think about a novel for about a year before I actually begin to compose it. And, you know, these story maps, they have not just the ending, they have several set piece moments. They might show uh, this rock bottom moment, or they might show uh, this plot point, or they might show this inciting incident or, or whatever. But you can sort of think about the story maps like a, a constellation where you have like these stars and then the act of discovery is still very much a part of the process because I'm figuring out when I'm writing, how to get from star to star. I'm feeling figuring out like the gossamer threads that, that connect them all that form that, you know, uh, that larger constellation. So I guess I would just say, you know, would you, would you build a cathedral without a set of blueprints? Would you build a skyscraper? trust to hire a contractor who, you know, was supposed to build a skyscraper for you. And, and the contractor walked around and said, well, I think we'll put a few nuts here, a few bolts there and the piping will tangle all together somehow. And maybe this will be the entryway. Maybe not. We'll see. You know, sure. You can do that. 
<clears throat> with a treehouse. Like, I don't need a set of plans to build a treehouse. And as much as I love short stories, I would say that, you know, a short story is more of a treehouse. And you should absolutely feel free to just be more impressionistic and to, and to chase an image, chase a voice, see where it takes you in writing one. But with a novel, I, I would say that you kind of have to be a little crazy to do that. You, you mentioned the idea of set piece. And in your book, you define set pieces as, as those moments that linger in people's memories, maybe 10 years even after they, they've read your book, they can remember a scene. And, and they're very specific moments that are usually um, a lot of people remember the same thing. And that in novels, you want four of those. So I, I could see how if you knew your ending, it would help you place those better. Again, there's not a exact math to this but if you're looking at a screenplay they're looking for four producers are looking for four or five of these set pieces so in a novel it just depends on how long the thing is but you're going to want to have you know what alfred hitchcock calls crescendos i think that's a much better term people get confused by the term set piece because and i i used to be one of them i thought that set piece referred to pieces of the set uh you know like how well-managed the gray wall prison in Shawshank Redemption was or something. And set piece instead implies a heightening, like an action sequence. Uh, it doesn't have to be an action sequence, of course. It could be a moment like uh, the orgasm scene and when Harry met Sally. Um, but these indelible moments that sort of anchor your storyline. Um, you know, the untouchables, stairway sequence, stairway shootout that's one that i unpack in the in the in thrill me and the careful orchestration of that you know it usually there's usually a heightening like a, a an amplification it's everything slows down uh and if you're talking about literature usually there's an amplification of language if you're talking about film there's an amplification of special effects or camera cutting like the that psycho shower scene that we were discussing, there's a, there's one of the great set pieces. And if you applied that same stylistic strategy to the rest of the movie, it just wouldn't work, right? You can't have 50 camera cuts at the opening when she's working at the bank. Like here she is making, you know, filing a deposit. You can't have, you know, the violin screeching and all these crazy camera cuts going on as she counts out the money or people would have walked out the, out of the theater. Instead, you know, you have to save up uh, the pyrotechnics for those moments because you're calling attention to them and telling your audience this is important. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Benjamin Percy, author of The Deadlands, Red Moon, and Thrill Me, Essays on Fiction. Our interview was recorded via Skype. Can you talk about a writer that influenced you? Can you read a passage from an author that maybe helped you with your last novel or just influenced you as a writer in general? Sure. I'll just read a section of Blood Meridian from Cormac Corm, you know, McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And this, is, this ties into what we were talking about before with set pieces in that you have this heightening of language. This whole scene here is only three sentences, and it's when this attack occurs. 
Already you could see through the dust on the pony's hides, the painted chevrons and the hands and rising suns and birds and fish of every device like the shade of old work through sizing on a canvas. And now, too, you could hear above the pounding of the unshod hooves the piping of the quina, flutes made from human bones, and some among the company had begun to saw back on their mounts, and some to mill in confusion went up from the offsides of those ponies. There rose a fabled horde of mounted lancers and archers bearing shields bedite with bits of broken mirror glass that cast a thousand unpeaced suns against the eyes of their enemies. A legion of horribles, hundreds in number, half-naked or clad in costumes attic or biblical or wardrobed out of a fevered dream with the skins of animals and silk finery and pieces of uniform still tracked with the blood of prior owners, coats of slain dragoons, frogged and braided cavalry jackets, one in a stovepipe hat and one with an umbrella and one in white stockings and a blood-stained wedding veil and some in headgear of crane feathers or rawhide helmets that bore the horns of bull or buffalo and one in a pigeon-tailed coat worn backwards and otherwise naked and one in the armor of a Spanish conquistador, the breastplate and pauldrons deeply dented with old blows of mace or saber done in another country by men whose very bones were dust and many with their braids spliced up with the hair of other beasts until they trailed upon the ground and the horse's ears and tails worked with bits of brightly colored cloth and one whose horse's whole head was painted crimson red and all the horsemen's faces gaudy and grotesque with daubings like a company of mounted clowns death hilarious all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding down upon them like a horde from a hell more horrible yet than the brimstone land of christian reckoning screeching and yammering and clothed in smoke like those vaporous beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools oh my god said the sergeant and that's the third sentence oh my god said the sergeant which is also what i said when i first read this uh, I had never encountered <laughs> anything like it. <clears throat> and I love the expansiveness of it and how Cormac McCarthy's voice sounds like something elemental. Uh, it sounds like a you know mountain cracked open and his prose fell out. And it's completely over the top. I recognize that. But this was kind of a, this was a big moment for me when I was reading because at the time I just entered my MFA program and I, I read this, I got to this section of the book and I just, I had to set the book down walk away from it. And I thought, God, I'm, you know, I'm never going to be that good. And, you know, just the idea too, though, that in these set piece moments, you'd crank up the volume. This is the equivalent of those 50 camera cuts that occur in Psycho and those screeching violins during the shower scene. This is the moment, this is the equivalent to the moment in the untouchables during the staircase shootout, which takes place over 10 minutes or so when everything goes into slow motion and the bullets are are flying and the music is blaring and that baby pram is chunk chunk chunking its way down the staircase as kevin costner runs for it even as he faces uh you know the onslaught of gunfire like this is the literary equivalent of those big filmic crescendos so applause can you read something you wrote maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or you had a lot of trouble with it sure i'll give you an example that's you know, it sort of goes against some of what I've been talking about. I'm I'm really talking about in this book techniques, and I'm I'm advocating knowing the rules 
so that you can learn how to break them. Like I say, a lot of bombastic prescriptive things with the guests, with the hope that people are going to read it and say, Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. And then, you know, maybe they listen to three things I say and ignore seven. Just the idea that, you know, Picasso before he went not so, uh, with his technique, like he knew how to paint realism. So there's all of that, that there's all of that that inform, you know, the, the rules that I'm laying out and thrill me. But the other thing that I guess I, I want to say is that sometimes there are no rules, right? So sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. Uh, and this is an example, um, of a scene that I thought about for a long time and I kind of lived and I know that sounds corny, but just the idea that the idea that there's a theatricality to writing. I feel like almost every MFA student or everybody who's interested in writing should take a should take a course in theater. Because, you know, on a daily basis I'm 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 trying out different voices or I'm walking up to a door and trying to open up it roughly to try and, you know, replicate the experience or I'm listening to certain music to put me in the mood or, or whatever. And this is just a scene where I wasn't thinking so much about technique at all. I was just thinking about living the moment. And I think it's one of the better things that I've written, like one of the, one of my favorite set pieces that I've ever written. And I'm not going to read the whole thing cause it goes on too long, but I'll just read the opening of it. And it's from red moon. Claire doesn't know what's happening outside right this minute as the small brigade of vehicles, the armored vans, the black sedans with government plates appear at the end of her block with their headlights off. She lives in a wooded neighborhood, each house set back on a half acre lot. There are no street lights, no sidewalk. The vehicles purr to a stop. Their doors swing open, but do not close. Any noise that might bring Claire to the window, the stomp of boots along the asphalt, the clatter of assault rifles and ammunition clips is muffled by the steady snowfall, a white shroud thrown over the night. She does not know about the tall man in the black suit and black necktie, his skull as hairless as a stone who stands next to his black Lincoln Town car. She does not know that he has his hands tucked into his pockets or that the snow is melting against his scalp and dripping down his face or that he is smiling. She does not know that her father and mother are sitting at the kitchen table drinking their way through a bottle of Merlot, not holding but squeezing each other's hands in reassurance as they watch CNN, the coverage of what the president calls a coordinated terror attack directed at the heart of America. So she does not know that when the front door kicks open, splintering along its hinges, her father is holding the remote in his hand, a long black remote that could be mistaken for a weapon. She does not know that he stands up so suddenly his chair tips over and clatters the floor, that he screams no and holds out his hand, the hand gripping the remote and points it at the men as they come rushing through the entryway the dark rectangle of night with snow fluttering around them like jamp shredded paper she only knows when she hears the crash the screams the rattle of gunfire that she must run 
Well, that is the inciting incident, which so often aligns with that's the inciting incident for this character. Anyway, there are multiple characters in the novel. Uh, but the inciting incident of a story so often aligns with one of the central set pieces, right? The reason your story is being told is the introduction to trouble and the resolution to trouble. If not for that inciting incident, and if not for that summit of your story, uh, it would not exist. The narrative would not exist at all. So that's one of the reasons I read it because it, you know, aligns with what we've been talking about with set pieces, but also because I was completely organic uh, when writing it. And I listened to several Nick Cave songs to sort of put me in the mood uh, before writing it. I was pacing around and just saw, saw the entire scene in my head cinematically. Um, and it wasn't, I don't know, sometimes you, you know, you're, you're pushing things around in a very precise way, a very mechanical way. And this is instead one of those moments where I was swept away and, you know, the pages wrote themselves, uh, and sometimes you're just in that it place, that zone. And an hour later, you look up and there's five pages in front of you. That was one of those moments. Where do you write? In my dungeon. Uh, I, look, I write in the basement of my home. And it's a walkout basement, so there is a window looking out on the woods. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I start writing as soon as I get my kids on the bus at 7 a.m. And then... I get up when they get home around 3.30 or 4. So oftentimes writing that long, and sometimes I'll write again in the evenings or edit in the evenings or read in the evenings. You know, working that much is playing that much with your imaginary friends. It's, you know, bad for your brain. Uh, so to sort of re-enter the world, I oftentimes have to exercise. You know, I'll go for a walk or hit the weights or, run or whatever, uh, just because it's hard for me to sort of turn off that other realm. And, you know, I'll be upstairs making a snack for the kids or trying to talk to them about their day or run out and do some errands or whatever. And I'll still be sort of like almost comatose. Um, so I need to get the blood flowing. I need to slap myself around and feel the wind on my face if I'm going to be fully a part of this world and not the other. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My agent. That's it. I don't have a, a writer's group. Uh, and I guess I have the ghosts of workshop past on my shoulder. So I sometimes think about, oh, what would this person say? And uh, I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't want that. I don't want more noise in my life. <laughs> you know, my agent and then my editors are always hard on incredibly hard on me anyway. So I feel like they take me where I need to go. And my first drafts are in no way perfect. Uh, but I take them as far as I can go. And then my editor says, okay, let's lose these 500 pages. And, and you know, she's right. So I have a, a very trusted cabal of, of uh, agents and my agent and the editors that I work with in comics and novels and magazines that make me make me a lot better than I am. They, they reduce my suckitude. And how have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is constant. I mean, it, I used to go out to the mailbox and say, time to get rejected. This is when I was first starting off and sending off so many different short stories and getting dear writer, uh, you know, form rejections in the mail. Uh, and, you know, every writer has piled enough of these to wallpaper their house. Uh, but, People should 
<clears throat> recognize that this never ends. Like I keep getting rejected. You're rejected all the time. You know, I don't know what the math is on it. What percentage of pitches that I've made actually get accepted? It's it's low. But I just, you know, I'm just so damn stubborn that I break through. Uh, the same as any gambler, right? You just, you can't like focus. You don't walk up to craps table or roulette and like put all your money on one thing. And if you don't, and if you know, you don't win, you walk out like that's, that's a terrible sensibility to have. You spread out your chips on the table and you know, you're going to lose, but you know, if you play long enough, you'll win. And what is your favorite word? Oh, I don't know. Maybe monster like monster just the way it tastes in my mouth but also you know it's such a it's so fun and delightful and yet terrifying you've been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio my guest who joined me via skype was benjamin percy author of three novels two short story collections and most recently thrill me essays on fiction you can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft to dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>